1: A playlist original.
0: Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof
2: is a proof, but kind
1: of
0: a proof, it's a proof. It
1: has no core identity. It's mashed potatoes with no gravy. You
0: know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them.
2: Hello, and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate, and I'm Liv, and today we're talking about
1: Margaret Atwood. So, Katie, what did you know about Margaret Atwood before we started researching for this episode?
2: I think I knew a lot about Margaret Atwood before I started looking into this episode, but I will say that, well, I don't know what a lot means, but she was, she was certainly on my radar. But I would say that I really didn't get exposure to her until probably my 20s. And I'm very jealous of the people who got to read her uh, in school, like in high school, um, I didn't really take English in university, so I, I didn't really, I didn't get any of her work um, in university either. But Margaret Atwood was something that w- was never forced upon me. She's some, she's somebody that I found, and I'm really jealous of people that actually got to read Canadian literature in school because I didn't get that. Um, what about you? What did you know about Margaret Atwood? Yeah, so
1: Margaret Atwood was on. My curriculum for school, Handmaid's Tale, we read in grade 12. I was in a different literature stream. So I read The Stone Angel by Margaret Lawrence, another famous Margaret, Canadian Margaret. So I was exposed to her quite early and had an understanding of who she was and who she was in Canadian literature. Um, but I didn't know a lot about her personally. And so this is been fun to research for that for that reason uh to get into you know what she's really all about let's do it let's get into it i want to start with this quote from mclean's in 1976 they called margaret atwood an image maker haunted by her own projected images canada's most gossiped about writer can list the various and she would say distorted images of her public mirror gives her gives her back there's the goddess, the bitch, the nationalist, the feminist, the Venus, the madwoman, and now Earth mother. <laughs> she really holds true to like what sh- what she believes. She's not afraid of anyone and she speaks her mind and I'm not surprised that she like that she's been labeled as like all of those things. Um I, I don't
2: know if I would agree that she's the bitch, but <laughs> fair. But she's definitely doesn't pull any punches and if you listen to her or watch her in interviews or even read interviews with her she doesn't take any bullshit and she doesn't (laughs) she calls people on their their shit all the time yeah which is really uh enjoyable i think that if you as you spend more time with her like observing her as we as i have there certainly is a softness to her and people who know her will say here we
0: go oh my god stop
2: (laughs) People who know her will say she has a really big heart and I do think that, that that comes through as well. And she always like settles, she usually settles in and when she gets to the interviewer who she who she really likes cuz she doesn't like them all. You can tell that there's there is a kindness to her obviously. I think and I think you can tell that from her work that that, that that's there within her, but I really do think that she's she's There's a kindness to her that probably is a bit, a little bit more underexplored. Um, She also, she reads palms a lot. Palms? Like hand palms? Yeah. And and in a lot of her interviews, like she'll spend some of the time reading the palm of the interviewer. Cool. And she really gives really truthful reading. She's like, you know what? You're really bossy. (laughs) (laughs) I would love Um, Margaret Atwood to read my palm. I wonder what she would say. I know. Let me tell you, she wouldn't hold back. (laughs) I imagine most of us know Margaret Atwood for her novels. Um, mm-hmm. She's also a very prolific poet. She's written quite a bit of nonfiction. She's written children's books. She's written literary criticism. She's a really prolific and well-rounded writer in that way. Um, should we dive into kind of dive into? Let's her also life?
1: not forget about. Sorry, can I just say? Let's also yeah. not forget that she wrote a rock song.
2: <laughs> she did.
1: Yeah. It's called like Frankenstein Monster Song. And she wrote um uh the libretto for an opera about, <laughs> about three fabrics. <laughs> she wrote it for home it was a home ec themed opera. So funny. Anyway. So she's she's like you said, a very well rounded writer.
2: <laughs> so should we start at the very beginning? A very good place to start. So Margaret Atwood was born in Ottawa at the Ottawa General in 1939. She says she was born sometime at the end of a Grey Cup game. <laughs> okay. Uh, for those who know the area, she grew up on Patterson Avenue in Ottawa, which is near. I mean, everything is a lot of things are near the Rideau Canal, but, but it, it is really near the, the Rideau Canal. Uh, she's a middle child, which I think is is interesting. I wonder how many of our our greatest artists are middle children. Why do you say that? Isn't
1: that a thing? I don't know. I don't have a middle child in my family, so I'm not as familiar with the middle children.
2: I think the one that gets the least attention has to entertain themselves and be a little more imaginative. Okay. Okay, I buy that. Her her father, Carl, was a forest entomologist who she says inspired, you know, within her a love for science, which we certainly see in her work. Her mother, Margaret, was a dietitian slash nutritionist. I'm not sure which one. I've seen conflicting uh, takes on that. But from Woodville, Nova Scotia, she describes her parents as economic refugees. She says they came to Ottawa from Nova Scotia during the Depression looking for opportunity. She seemed to move around quite a bit in her childhood between Northern Quebec, Ottawa, Sault Ste. Marie, and Toronto. Uh, She spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid, and she's still really fond of the outdoors, and she... I think, probably not coincidentally, writes a lot about ecological destruction. She says she didn't attend school full-time until she was 12, which I think is interesting and in that her mother would like, give her work to do. Um, I think she attended schools intermittently, but she wasn't because she moved around so much. Um, she never like grew up going to the same school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. She also was famously a brownie. As was I. So was I. I wasn't a very good brownie. I didn't get a lot of badges. I wasn't really that into it. I wasn't committed.
1: Yeah, I only did one year, I think, in the brownies. I think I did two. I was a spark, and then I was a brownie. And then that was that.
2: So she's written about being a brownie <laughs> in quite a bit, actually, and she talks about it a lot. Mm. She's It's come up in her novels uh, as part of the story, which I think makes sense. You know, we see in her work, she's got a fascination with, like, secret societies and, like, that are ritualistic and have handshakes and things like that. So I think that brownies is a good fit for her. But
1: brownies isn't Canadian, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. Okay.
2: Girl Scouts is American.
1: But being a brownie specifically is Canadian.
2: Brownies comes from Girl Guides Canada. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Brownies is Canadian. I'm glad we clarified that. Mm Mm-hmm. She starts writing very young. She started writing plays and poems when she was six. Um, and it was around when she was 16, she decided she was going to be a writer, that she wanted to write as a career. And she says she even announced it to her friends <laughs> at school in the cafeteria. It's very end of Green Gables of her.
1: Well, I think it's interesting that she said her favorite writer as a teen was Edgar Allan Poe. Um, yeah, because obviously he's famous, like, for kind of, like, dark, mysterious stories. And I think that you can definitely see, um, well, I guess, like, similar, similar themes in her stories. So it's, like, the influence is, like, there, I think. You can see the influence.
2: So she goes to university. She studies at Vic College at University of Toronto. She majors in English, minors in French and philosophy, Uh, I think all these things pretty well track Mm. for her work. Yeah, Uh, She attained her master's at Radcliffe College in Harvard.
1: Okay, but can we just say, like, at the time, like, women going to post – like, postdocs in the 60s was rare, you know? Um, And I think it's – this, like, kind of didn't make sense to me about her family. Like, I was kind of, like, expecting her family to be – like more I guess more affluent or something like that, because like women who went to school in the sixties, well, I mean, I guess that she was part of the the strain of women who were who was just like exceptionally bright. um, I think that's probably uh probably her motivation, but I just I think it's like interesting and noteworthy to stop and just say like this wasn't necessarily normal, and she was um you know someone. Yeah, someone who is extraordinarily bright, extraordinarily motivated to be more than just um, one of the five professions that women kind of had options to be at that time.
2: And I think speaking to that success, she also had a distinguished teaching career. She had held teaching positions at UBC, um, Sir George Williams University, now called Concordia, um, and York University in the 60s and 70s. I think this might be a good time to talk about her personal life. Sure. So in 1968, she married a man called Jim Polk, who was a Harvard classmate. Um I don't have much about her time with Jim Polk. I know that they I think they got married shortly after her first she released her first novel. And she they divorced in nineteen seventy three. Do you have I, much to say about Jim?
1: I heard that they got married in order for him to avoid the draft.
2: Really? Mm-hmm. Oh wow.
1: Yeah, so that's 100%. why Yeah, it was in um she talked about it in a CBC documentary. But – so I wasn't necessarily surprised that they divorced. I think it maybe was like a – you know, that they were obviously like in love, wanted to be married, but that it was a marriage of convenience at that time and maybe wasn't, you know, the best long-term fit. But she obviously found the best long-term fit with Graham Gibson.
2: Who seems to be the great love of her life. I would uh, say
1: that as well.
2: Yeah, who she met shortly after. Um she left Jim Paul. I for
1: don't, I think that they met during.
2: I think they did too, but I wasn't going to say that.
1: Listen, it's, it's, it's facts are facts.
2: Well, I don't know if they, if they were together during, like, we don't, listen, we're not, this is not, no, yeah, we no, we're, we're not sure. That, but they met. Still yeah. They, to meet.
1: they definitely, yeah. they definitely did meet while she was still, well, they were both married, I think.
2: Graham Gibson, the great love of her life, also a novelist. They had a child together, a daughter called Eleanor, who goes by Jess um Atwood Gibson. So Graham passed away on September 18, 2019, after living with dementia. Um he suffered a stroke. And this inspired the poem dearly. Um which I think she wrote I think she wrote while he was while he was ill, but she released it uh, alongside an essay on grief and poetry, um, which is a it's a quick read and definitely worth worth checking out. And they seem to be very much in love, like,
1: their whole their whole time together, right till the very end. And um, she once – this is funny. She gave her get, uh, Graham a t-shirt that read, Every woman writer should be married to Graham. <laughs>
2: hmm.
1: Oh. That was very sweet.
2: That is lovely.
1: Mm-hmm. I also like that they, like – yeah, like, I also, I was, maybe we were going to say the same thing. I was just going to say, I really liked that they, like, lived on this farm in Alliston. I thought it was, like, kind of cute. That their life together was probably
2: just, like, great. <laughs> yeah, they lived in the annex for some, for parts of it. They were both great walkers. They really enjoyed their walks together. And I think as as much as she was grieving, she also says that she was glad that he was able to go uh, in a way that he wanted to. He, he did pass away before um, the dimension was so debilitating and he still really had all of him there um, so I think she found some comfort in that in her grief but of course what a shock um, I'm sure that was
1: well it's funny because she's like you know she's 80 now in her 80s now but she doesn't seem to be like slowing down she still has so much life in her
2: oh my god she's not slowing down at all <laughs> Oh yeah, she's extremely, extremely quick and bright and creative and curious and all, all of the great things. Um, let's. So I wanted to put a disclaimer at the beginning, but I forgot. So we're not gonna dive into like the details of, um, obviously, all of her. I think eighteen now novels and and several entire books of poetry. But we want to talk a little bit about her style and and what makes her unique as a writer and, and kind of some of the things that the themes that seep into the different kinds of work that she's done. She's always, um, kind of regardless of genre, she's always seems to be interested in politics, global and personal, um, environmental degradation, women's roles in society, power, I think generally, and the dynamics of social organization. Um, and she's also been crowned uh, the prophet of dystopia. <laughs> um, I think probably most of us know her for her dystopian works, and I think those are some of the most resonant of of her work. We'll, we'll, we'll get into Margaret the prophet later, but... Okay, she's also known for science fiction, but I think it's really interesting that... Um, when she's responded to people call certain works of hers, like people will call to Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Craig science fiction, which she rejects. She says they are speculative fiction because science fiction has monsters and spaceships. Speculative fiction could really happen. Let's talk about her Margaret Atwood as the prophet of dystopia.
1: Okay. First of all we should say that she doesn't want to be called the prophet.
2: She rejects <laughs> she rejects being called the prophet. However She's been hailed a prophet because she's written about uh, quite a bit about climate disasters, lab manufactured meat, uh, the Western fertility crisis, um, and then societies being increasingly ruled by misogynistic strongmen. Um, and years before these things were really on people's radar, um, I think it seems almost everywhere we look, we see features from her many worlds within her many works. Um, If you have a peek at any media outlet, you'll find something that's been mentioned in one of these novels, like The Lab Grown Meat, um, of course, climate change, environmental degradation, state surveillance, um, increasing limits on women's reproductive autonomy, um, and even antimicrobial clothing. (laughs) Hmm. Um, Personally, I own Lululemon clothing that has the silver in it, um, because it's great. Mm -hmm. It's... One of my favorite facts is um, there's I think there's a few different signs at the Women's March in 2017, um, participants holding up signs saying, uh, make Margaret Atwood fiction again. (laughs) So but she in terms of um, her response to being called the prophet, which again, she rejects. She doesn't. She rejects this because she says it's a misunderstanding of dystopian fiction, which she says, isn't a prediction of the future. It's an interpretation of the present. Um, and she, especially with Handmaid's Tale, which we should probably, maybe we'll dive into now, she talks about like all the features of Handmaid's Tale, like all the, you know, in terms of um, the strange details in Handmaid's Tale are, th- are things she's picked out from history, um, whether present or past. But she also, in terms of the making of Handmaid's Tale, she, I think she auctioned this off. She had, like, a box of newspaper clippings um, related to, like, uh, lower birth rates for Western women. Um, and different cults that um, operated in,
1: this, uh, like, similar ways. Yes, uh, there was
2: – yes, that's right. There's, a, um, I think, a, a Christian, um, like, evangelist cult that has uh, women who are, like – I think surrogates who are called literally called handmaids. Like yeah. everything that she's taken that we think of as um, predictions are, are things that she's noticed in the world around her.
1: Well, think- <laughs> it's specifically sought out and researched. Yes, of course. yeah. It's
2: not like it's not like I'm not saying handmaids. It's like yeah, yeah. Happening. but um, but she's not the prophet as much as the observer. I think she would probably say
1: yeah. And I think that. It's I because I heard that a lot too, that she distinctly wanted everything in the Handmaid's Tale to be something that was true at some time in the world, in some part of the world, so that people literally could not call it uh science fiction.
2: So before researching this, I didn't realize obviously I knew about the Hulu series.
1: Did you ever watch it?
2: Yes. Yeah. But I didn't realize how famous that book was, and I didn't realize that's it's widely considered, of course, controversially her greatest novel, um, and it was of high critical acclaim long before the series was created. Um, it's <laughs> for those who don't know, there's been a it's been serialized into a critically claimed acclaimed series on Hulu starring Elizabeth Moss. Um, and it's old. It was written in 1985, mm-hmm. uh, but adapted to this specific series in 2017. Um, it's, without getting into too much detail, although we probably will spoil Handmaid's Tale for those of you who are listening, um, <laughs> it's it, her, the, the idea behind Handmaid's Tale at a very high level is to answer the question of what a totalitarian regime would look like in the United States and how it would manifest and this is what uh, Awad has created. Um, I think also fascinatingly, it's been adapted um, many other times. It, it's not, this series is not the first adaptation. It was uh, adapted into a play in 2002. Um, also a one woman show in 2015, which was just entirely in Offred's room from which, and uh, where Offered the Handmaid tells her tale. It was adapted in 2003 into an opera commissioned by the Royal Danish opera, which is interesting because for those who love Margaret Atwood knows that she really loves opera. It was also, uh, adapted into a ballet. <laughs> um, so this is we we were going to spend time with this, not just because we love the Hulu series, which we do, but because this is, I think a, a pretty seminal work. And if you can say that for somebody who's as prolific as her, um, and, and, and I think draws in probably some of the themes of hers that we're most interested in, if we're being completely honest.
1: Yeah. I think it's also like just extremely well done. And I think that that's why so many people want a piece of it, you know, whether it's um, dance or song or, you know, just straight acting. It, it makes sense why it's, it's so rich with themes and – um that are you know that were relevant in the '80s, but are relevant today, and so it, it makes sense why everybody want it. It keeps being relevant, and I think what's interesting, uh, which was noted that at the time that she was writing, you know, there was. Books like Brave New World, 1984, that were, uh, this dystopian genre. But what she said that she noticed about those is that they were constantly written from the male perspective. And so she wanted to create a dystopian novel that was from the female perspective. Now, when you do anything from the, <laughs> from a woman's perspective, what she says is that it almost inherently becomes feminist because you're hitting on, um, a woman's a woman's lived experience so i think that that's that was kind of interesting is that not it wasn't that she set out to write a feminist novel or be this feminist but by giving the woman's voice and the woman's perspective um the uh the time i guess or the what the opportunity you're inherently gonna get a feminist novel
2: and I think that like so much of her work, I think like so, so most novelist work, it's it's so inherently political and I think it's not shocking. Um, you given kind of the overt feminism of it, that it's also been, it's left the screen, the stage and the page and it's been invoked in protests in real life. Um, during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, protesters showed up dressed as handmaids from, <laughs> from the yeah. Handmaid's Tale. They also showed up to the Texas Senate in protests of anti-abortion bills, um, but I think again that that goes to show that this is just it's dystopian, but it's it's extrapolated from real life. And as we see um, certain rights being eroded, people people respond, and, and people I don't know people use these examples in fiction to kind of as a powerful a, resp- a powerful way to interact with the real world. Should we oh, talk definitely. About it? Wait, about, can I just say something yeah.
1: about that before we move on? Um I think that's partly to the credit of the costume designer who did a fantastic job making something um like so iconic. It's just like, it's simple. It's, you know, the it's red so cloak. It's so simple. You yeah, can get I, it.
2: You can, fig- yeah, you can make it.
1: It's the red robe with the winged bonnet. And, um, you know, what I heard Uh, Margaret Atwood say also was that, you know, when you go, you can attend the Senate hearings and you can't necessarily say anything. You're not allowed to, you know, participate. But if you show up wearing a costume that is recognizable for something, you can make a statement without saying anything. And um, I think that's what's so fantastic about the the outfit, which obviously is from Margaret Atwood, um, but has been taken up to this whole other level, which I think, you know, is a a real sign of genius.
2: I think to make this make sense, should we talk a little bit about the plot of The Handmaid's Tale?
1: Sure. Because not everyone knows it, you know?
2: So it's set in near future-ish England, sorry, New England. Um, Most believe it's like Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. But it's in a New England where a totalitarian theocracy has overthrown the United States um, women have been stripped of all rights. Okay. Infertility is on the rise. Um, so women who are able to produce are assigned to households of, um, I guess, the upper class. Yeah. And they are enslaved as handmaidens um, to...
0: Bury bear the cho- children.
2: Bear the children of the ruling class of men. Um, and the narrator of the book, Offred, is a handmaiden who is forced into uh, a relationship with the commander um, so that the commander and his wife can raise a child because they are a- unable to have children of their own.
1: And their names are all based on, like, of the man who, of the household mm-hmm. that they are assigned to. So it could be, like, of Fred, of mm-hmm. George, of Edward. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. like I didn't, That didn't click right away when I heard of Fred. It, like, took me a while to meet the other handmaids to be like, oh, everyone's just – named for the man mm-hmm.
2: there's off Glenn there's all yes there's the other ones. yeah I think something that's interesting that she identifies herself is how um she she I don't know why she picks these three uh nations but um she, the way that she characterizes how the English and the Canadians and the Americans view this story she kind of the English she says that the English kind of see it as oh, what a good story, because they just can't really imagine this possibility for themselves. Um, Canada- she says, Canadians say it in a nervous way, like, could it happen here? Um, which she says, which Canada always is always saying about just about everything. <laughs> she says the States is split in two with some saying, don't be silly, it could never happen here, and others, particularly, particularly on the West Coast, saying, how long have we got? <laughs> uh, and spray painting the Venice Beach wall with the Handmaid's Tale is already here. Yeah. And I think this might be a good opportunity to transition Margaret and Canadian literature. In
1: 1972, she wrote um, Survival, a thematic guide to Canadian literature, which basically gave a landscape of Canadian literature at that time. And it's, fu- <laughs> it's funny that she did that before... She was really truly a part of it in, in such a like meaningful way. This obviously 72 is before Handmaid's Tale, uh, before Alias Grace, before kind of like her, her most famous novel. So I thought it was like interesting. Like right from the beginning of her career, she was interested in how the, the larger landscape of Canadian literature was functioning. And I wonder if that kind of informed how she became a part of it too. I'm sure it did, but it's just kind of funny.
2: Well, I think it goes to show that maybe no one has shaped Canadian literature quite, if not as much as her, but quite like her. Like the fact that she's, well, the fact that she's got her hands in so many different pots, right? The fact that she's written this pretty seminal work that was, I think, for a long time, um, the fact that she wrote this seminal work on literary criticism in Canada, where she kind of defines Canadian literature as the controlling idea of Canadian literature is the concept of survival, whereas she says, you know, whereas English literature is preoccupied with the island, pervasive American symbol is the frontier. Canadian identity is characterized by survival. Um, And there's these days, it's this is, this book is very widely criticized, and it kind of almost, I wouldn't say it's widely considered to be outdated, although it certainly made its way onto plenty of syllabi in, um, you know, Canadian literature courses and English courses in universities. But I think the fact that she wrote this book and then became this famous novelist and poet, yeah, it goes to show you that she is just, you know, such a force of nature in Canadian literature. Um, I think we won't get into, like, the thesis and of survival too much because it's a bit in the weeds but um it's definitely interesting and if you don't want to read survival she wrote (laughs) because it's if you don't have the time there's a much shorter mclean's article which you could probably enjoy that she wrote in 1999 revisiting it again um but this is but again this has kind of been criticized as kind of a largely aligned with like a white angle anglophone perspective of canadian literature which is Obviously, you're um, not representative, and maybe a little bit reductive, um, but certainly at the time was, and and the book became a bestseller, and certainly shaped. I think the book itself shaped Canadian literature as much as it was commenting on it and defining it. I think I'm also interested in the Canadianness that seeps into, like, everything that she she does. Like she she's. Always talking about being Canadian. Like, she brings up being Canadian sometimes where it's like almost doesn't, isn't appropriate for the moment. Like, (laughs) she inserts it always. Um, It is, it seems to be essential to who she is and how she sees herself, I think, as a person and as a writer. When she's talking about like Peggy, the person, um, she's, she invokes Canada as a way to explain herself constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, as we know anyone who's read her read her work knows that Canada seeps into her novels um all the time even if they're not set there which many are um there Canada is always visited pretty well i think I, I think in almost all of them um Canada is visited or featured in some way by the novel um she also seems to think of things in comparatives to Canada like when she even when she talks about handmaids she she talks about it as what, what it would look like, what, what totalitarianism in the U.S. would look like today if it visited us today, but she also just, she defines it in comparative to Canada, whereas I think the rest of us, <laughs> like Canadians included, tend to define ourselves in relation to the United States very often. Um, she de- Even when she does American things, she defines them in relation to the Canadian, which fascinates me.
1: Um, Well, I really liked this thing that she said um, in an interview with Tyler Cowen when she said, you know, Canada's really big. There's a song called Canada's Really Big by the Arrogant Worms and that sums up Canada for you. And I thought, you know, it's – I don't think it gets said enough that Canada is this huge nation, the second biggest landmass in the world, and it's very sparsely populated. And so as a result – there are so many distinct cultures, and what Canada is founded on are distinct cultures, and multiculturalism is is the founding um, ethos of Canada. I would say in a lot of ways, and and despite the fact that you know she like has lived all over the country and and has had you know different she really experiences, has around
2: a lot, and yeah, a lot to Canada, yeah,
1: and as much as she has done that, she you knows she represents like she she's very much like from ontario um that that like you know that that's what's most commonly kind of the the places that she's visited in her novels etc but she but like despite being like maybe canada's greatest author she doesn't say that her experience of canada is the right one she's like very conscious to always say like there's so many different perspectives there's so many different things and like this is This is, like, my experience. is where I am. Yeah, I think it's also just, like, you know, in the same way that she – when people ask her if she's a feminist, she doesn't just say yes. Like She
2: never – she always says there's 75 different types of feminism now. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. And so I think that that's also kind of the same idea about being Canadian, right? It's, like, yes, we're all under the same umbrella of being Canadian, but what it means for, you know – to be a canadian who's in alberta or it means to be a canadian who's in ontario or what it means to be an indigenous canadian like or a french canadian like there's so many different identities and so i think that um she's very interested in the details and she's very interested in the particulars and she's not just going to put broad strokes over anything um which i think that we're we're lucky that our (laughs) uh most famous author is concerned with the details of what it means to be canadian So Alias Grace is um, a fictionized version of the notorious 1843 murders um, in Toronto, in Canada West at the time. (laughs) And um, so the two servants of the Kinnear household were convicted of the crime. One of them, the man, was hung and Grace Marks was sentenced to life imprisonment. And the novel is – so the novel is all based on factual events but tells a fictional narrative of this psychologist who comes – psychiatrist, psychologist who comes to research uh, Grace Marks and, you know, her brain basically. And so the novel is Grace retelling this story of events to this um, Dr. Uh, Jordan. So what's what's interesting about this, which I think is kind of fun, is this idea that at that particular time, the, the idea of a man literally sitting and listening to a woman for hours on end was like kind of an extraordinary concept.
2: Kind of science fiction.
1: Kind of science fiction, especially at that time, right? And I think what's – this obviously is a historical fiction, this novel – But what she says is that whenever you're writing historical fiction, it is based um, in the time that you're writing it. You can never escape your own reality, which I thought was interesting. So, also fascinating is that at the time that she was writing Alias Grace was the trial of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka. Thought you'd like that, Katie. So... What she was fascinated about with the trial of um, Bernardo and Hamoka was how the public was reacting to the female criminal versus the male criminal, which is one of the central themes in Alias Grace. So she said uh, – I'll just read this quote. It's a little long, but it's, but it's interesting. In murders in which there is a man and a woman involved, public opinion usually goes to, in the following fashion. Everyone is agreed on the man, but opinion is usually split on the woman. One side is she instigated it all. She's the female demon. And the other side is she's an innocent victim coerced by force, circumstance, and fear. Then she said, this was all to the CBC. She said, that's how it's split on Carla. And it's certainly how it's split on Grace. So I thought that was really interesting. So, um, so I think that that's interesting. And obviously, K- Katie and I are planning to have a whole episode on Carla Homonko. So pin, put a pin in that. But, um, yeah, it's, it, and it, and it, you do see an alias grace. And I really encourage everyone to read it or, um, watch the, the series on Netflix, um, uh, directed in by Sarah Polley, uh, because it does, you do, it, you do get a sense of like, wanting something from grace that you're you can't quite achieve and that's what like uh she's calling into question in the novel is just like what what do we want from women what are we trying to get and why are we only interested in them if there's something like salacious or scandalous about their lives so um yeah i re- I really love dalia's grace
2: So she is a multi-talented person. She is also an inventor. I don't really know what an inventor is. But she conceived of the idea for the long pen. So the long pen is a remote control device that allows you to sign your wet ink signature remotely. And I think she conceived of it because she had to sign so many books. Is that true?
1: Well, I think also cuz her book has been translated all over the world, right? And people know her all over the world, so it makes sense that she was getting like requests from strange places um far from her that she could she couldn't necessarily access in a timely way, but she is like notoriously accessible to her fans. So it it tracks to me that she um wanted to to be able to interact with them and uh despite the distance.
2: People say she'll she'll like she's they've never seen her say no to an autograph or a photo like she's really really expensive. does that mean she
1: would never say no to a podcast
2: i don't know about that um, <laughs> but but she's definitely kind of just a part of the landscape in toronto so just to kind of where is she now she lives in toronto she lives in the annex neighborhood if you know that and she's become a real toronto personality like she she likes she and Graham both really enjoyed walking, but she still like loves her walks. She's always out and about in the neighborhood. She takes the subway in Toronto, um, so people do see her out and know her. Um, <laughs> I don't know. She made a big stink on Twitter a few years ago when she learned there were condos being built in her neighborhood, but <laughs> she she has become a real Toronto fixture, I would say. Um, her, where is she now? Her latest novel, The Testaments, was released September of 2019, which is a, a sequel to Handmaid's Tale um, that she said she would never, she never thought she would write.
1: And she has another novel to be published posthumously in 2021 two, 14. Yeah, so she was part of this project. Um, it was like a Norwegian initiative where they decided to put books away in a capsule and it'll be opened in a hundred years. So
2: She's already written her posthumous. She's written her posthumous novel. She knows that. Yeah. That's funny.
1: Yeah. Well, she's already written it and um, she did it on like a special paper or something. So it won't decay. And so in 2000 or 2114, there's going to be a new piece of writing from Margaret Atwood. Final thoughts. Uh, you know what? I like her more. I like her more than when I started to research. I like that she's so passionate about Canada. I really would love, you know, when this podcast is is big enough to get Margaret Atwood. The conversation I want to have with her is about what Canadian culture is, what Canadian, what Canadian she literature is. An- give
2: you a straight answer, either you know?
1: <laughs> no, I'd have to ask her very specific questions. I'd have to be like really, really, really like specific, and then she'd give me great insight. I can't wait.
2: Mm -hmm. And when you ask her yes or no questions, she just says yes or no.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I look forward to that conversation.
2: Handmaid's Tale is – the next season of Handmaid's Tale is coming out April 28th, 2021. Yes, it is. And I think
1: also before we – yeah, I can't wait. I can't – I actually am so excited for the next season, to be honest. Um, I also just want to end this on a pitch – That Canadian schools need to celebrate Margaret Atwood. We need to make sure she's in the curriculum. If you're an educator, you know, this is my plea to you. I think that we need to celebrate Canadian literature in our school system and that Margaret Atwood should absolutely be a staple of that. And if you have any qualms about it, get rid of them.
2: Thanks. See you next week.